Well, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to John. John chapter 3. We come to the end of our section in John 3. We come to the end of three chapters, so we are one-seventh of the way through this book by the time we get to the end of this section. Um, We have been seeing Jesus very clearly and seeing his glory and savoring his goodness towards us for those that he loves. We've seen that he loves the world. We have seen that he gave himself so that we could come to him. And now there's a bit of a turn. We end, uh, we ended two weeks ago with uh, leaving Nicodemus, leaving Jesus, leaving them, and Jesus moving away after he had finished his dialogue with Nicodemus, moving away And we pick it up in verse 22. We're going to see this whole section finishing out this book. And as we do, we're going to see John the Baptist on display. And we're going to see Jesus on display. We're going to see both of them. It's all going to start from a question. There's a question that's going to be asked of John the Baptist. We kind of pick back up in a narrative. And this question is going to bring forth an answer from John. And the answer that John gives is going to have a reason behind it. So that's going to be our outline. We're going to take that as our outline this morning. Number one, we will see the question. Number two, we will see John's answer. And number three, we will see the reason for his answer, the motivation behind his answer. So let's dive in. Verse 22, after these things, not only after just chapter three, but there are probably a couple weeks that happened in between uh, verse 21 and verse 22. So after everything with Nicodemus and other things that happened, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he was spending time with them and baptizing. Now, if you have a Bible that has enough print on one page, you can just look literally to the next page in John chapter 4, verse 2, to see a parenthetical statement that says Jesus was not baptizing himself. He himself was not doing the baptizing, which is for a reason. It was a good thing that he didn't do the baptizing, just the same way that Paul said he wasn't going to do the baptizing. Remember, He says, I'm glad that I didn't baptize you because if I had, then you would be saying, oh, I was baptized by Paul. You were only baptized by some lowly person. That's why Jesus isn't baptizing here. Jesus' disciples are baptizing, but Jesus says, I'm not going to baptize because I don't want anybody to say when I'm gone, I'm a true follower of Jesus because I was baptized by Jesus and you were not. So Jesus is baptizing. He isn't, but his disciples are. And that's why John says he was spending time with them and baptizing. Verse 23, John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized. Now, why these two cities? Why these two names, Anon and Salem? The reason is because those two cities and the reason for why John moved to those two cities gives us an insight already into John's character. We've already seen John the Baptist. He's a humble man. He's a selfless man. But in verse 23, when John, the gospel writer, says that John the Baptist was baptizing in Anon near Salem, he's using two cities that were well known back then. They're up in the north, so Jerusalem, uh, down in the south in Judea. Uh, Up in the north, as you move north from Jerusalem, you pass through Samaria. We're going to get to that uh, next week and why Samaria was so despised. At the very northern border of Samaria and uh, the upper part of Galilee, these two cities are there. Uh, they're right next to a city called Beit Shan. Beit Shan is where 
uh, Saul's body was hung. Saul the king in Israel, after he committed suicide and fell on his own sword, um, his body was taken and his body was hung up on the wall, up on the gates of Beit Shan. Uh, it's right on the northern border in Samaria. Why is that important? Why do we need to know that? Here's why it's important. John had success as a baptizer, as the forerunner of Jesus. But he had success down in the south, in the Jordan River, all the way down past uh, Jerusalem, way far in the south. And he willingly gives up that position where he was having success to go to a place where he wouldn't have as much success to make room for Jesus to have more success than him. We already see a beautiful picture of his humility. And then John, the gospel writer says, verse 24, John had not yet been thrown into prison. We talked at the very beginning of this study through John that John is the last gospel to be written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels were written far earlier, 20 to 30 years earlier. They were in circulation. John knew that. So John knew if you are reading his gospel, it's more than likely that you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know that John the Baptist was murdered. He was executed by having his head chopped off for calling Herod out for divorcing his wife for unlawful, unbiblical reasons, for having her divorce her previous husband for unbiblical reasons, and for getting married to his half-niece. So John the Baptist had said that's wrong on a number of different fronts. Biblically, you are in sin, and Herod ends up uh, executing him, having his head cut off. So you would know that if you're reading this. So John, the gospel writer, says, you know what? John the Baptist hasn't yet been put into prison. He hasn't yet been killed. This is a new section, a new territory that is not in the Synoptic Gospels. And so he's helping us who have read those gospel accounts to see where this fits in John's time, in his chronology. Now, verse 25, there arose a discussion um, Why? Well, therefore, there is a very helpful therefore, because John's baptizing and Jesus is baptizing, and they both have followers who are being baptized by their respective parties. There arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. So John's disciples are talking with a Jew, and they're talking about purification. Then, verse 26, they come to John and they say to him, Rabbi... He who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. There's a couple things that we just need to observe right off the bat. Number one, there was a discussion between a Jew and John's disciples about purification. But the question that's brought up doesn't really seem to have anything to do with purification, right? Um, It just has to do with jealousy, That's the second observation you can see in these verses. There is enormous jealousy. There's two telltale signs of jealousy in verse 26. Number one, this is the way that jealous people talk. Jealousy talks like this. Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing That's the way that jealous people talk. Not even using Jesus' name. They know Jesus. They don't even want to mention him. That person, that guy, he who shall remain nameless. We don't even want to name him. John's disciples are clearly envious and jealous. Telltale sign number two is at the very end. And all are coming to him. So jealousy speaks the way that they speak. Don't even name Jesus. Want to leave him out of it. 
But jealousy also thinks the way that they think. All are coming to him. That's not even a logical statement because it clearly says that Jesus has people baptizing and John has people being baptized. So that's happening. Both people, they moved. John the Baptist moved. And verse 23 tells us people were coming and were being baptized. Even the fact that there is a discussion about purification in verse 25 with this Jew, it, it is only possible because John the Baptist is baptizing people. So all are not going to Jesus. But again, that's the way jealous people think, right? Once they see something they don't like, they just say, everything's awful, everything's bad. They speak incorrectly, they think illogically. What do you do if you're like that? I just find this fascinating because you have two groups of people who love the Messiah, who love um, the Father, who love gospel ministry. John's disciples, Jesus' disciples, and there's an argument. It makes sense that there's an argument between somebody who loves God and somebody who hates God. I don't know if you've been there. In ministry, this happens way too frequently. This is why we go through books like Unoffendable. This is why we go through books like Side by Side. This is why we go through studies in books of interpersonal relationships. It's shocking to see how many times two people are trying desperately to love and obey God and they get into a fight as they're doing it. What do you do when that happens? This is obviously a sermon for another time. We kind of went through it in Philippians chapter 1 and chapter 2. But can I just make one note as I was thinking through this and thinking through, okay, I have struggled with jealousy before. I've struggled with envy. I know we all have. What should you do? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, here's what you should do. Number one, you should pray and you should thank God that you have something that God's given to you. You can be content for what God has given to you, namely Jesus Christ. You don't have to have anything else in the world. And if you have Jesus, you have more than enough. So thank God for what he has given to you. Jealousy is just looking at what you don't have that you really want. So stop doing that and thank God for what he has given to you. But number two, as you're praying and you're thanking God, you know what, God, I have enough. I don't need more. Thank you, God, for what you've given. Number two, can I just say, and I've done this on a couple of occasions, and it is one of the hardest prayers to pray. But if you're struggling with envy, if you're looking at somebody and saying, man, I wish I had what they had, and they just keep getting more of it and just making me mad, I want it. I deserve it. They don't deserve it. Pray and ask God that the person that you're jealous towards would get even more of what you're jealous about. If you're jealous about somebody's ministry, say, God, I pray that their ministry doubles tomorrow. If you're jealous about somebody's house, God, I pray that they get an even bigger house or that things go well. If you're jealous about that somebody got a new job, say, God, please bless them and give them another raise. Um, This is one of the hardest prayers that I've ever prayed. A prayer for those that you have turned into your enemy. They're not your enemy, but you've turned them into your enemy. And it softens your heart. God, take care of them and give them even more. So, These men are coming with a question, and the question ultimately is, are you going to do anything, John, about the fact that all of your disciples are starting to follow another man, and he's starting to take some of your would-be disciples? Our band is shrinking. His band is growing. Our influence is getting shorter. His is widening. Are you going to do anything, John? That's the question. The answer is very clear. 
and it's in verses 27 through 30. So the question, verses 22 through 26, John's response, his answer, this is in verses 27 through 30. And before we dive into his answer, because you know what his answer is, these are some very famous verses. Before we dive into his answer, he's going to say things that are recorded by John, the gospel writer, that have already been said. Just drop down to verse 28. You yourselves are my witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I have been sent ahead of him. He said that twice already in this gospel. John's already recorded John the Baptist saying these things. So my question naturally as I'm reading this is, John, why do you keep repeating yourself? John, gospel writer, why do you include this? Remember, John says at the end of his gospel, there are so many things that I could have included in my gospel, but I couldn't because I didn't have the space or the time, but it could fill every single book to overflowing that's ever been written in the entire universe. So he had to be selective. He had a scroll size problem, right? The scrolls were not an infinite amount of of space. So he had a scroll size problem. He had to narrow it down. And he's going to pick, as he's narrowing everything down that he could include, he's going to pick a three-peat of the same exact scenario. He's already said this twice, and this is the third time. This sounds almost identical. Well, it is to some of the things that John's already said. So, John, the gospel writer, why? Why are you involving John again? Why do you include him again? Why do you include this account again? Well, I don't think that John's repeating himself. I don't think that John, the gospel writer, is giving us a repeat account. I think he's giving us new information. And I think that the context would give us that understanding. Why is this here? Why would John move from Nicodemus and Jesus and discussion of the new birth to now John the Baptist and this discussion, this argument over John's followers and Jesus' followers? Can I just give it to you? I think this is the reason why this is here. There's newness to this passage that we haven't seen yet. And I think it's this. This passage shows you and me how to respond to the beauty of Jesus. If we understand what Jesus just told Nicodemus, we will rightly respond this way. Nicodemus did not respond this way. Nicodemus is going, how can these things be? I don't understand. I don't get it. I don't know if I agree. I'm struggling with it. John the Baptist is giving us a picture of what it looks like when the wind blows in your heart, when you see Jesus is more um, desirable than anything that this world has to offer. When Jesus becomes greater than anything you could possibly imagine, this is your reaction. So I think this is a picture, a living picture of what it looks like if you understand the new birth. John the Baptist is totally fine with Jesus becoming greater. Let him just keep getting bigger and bigger. Let me just diminish and get out of the way. Nicodemus probably is thinking, I don't really like that idea. I want to be big, right? I've developed all these rules. Just think about Nicodemus. His whole religious system was, I want people to see how amazing I am. And then right after that, John the Gospel writer is going to give us an account of John the Baptist saying, I don't want anybody to see how awesome I am. I'm not awesome. I want Jesus to be seen for as awesome as he truly is. So I think it's a beautiful parallel paradox. I think it's a beautiful uh, working of John, the gospel writer, to say Nicodemus didn't respond this way. This is what it looks like to respond rightly. 
Acts chapter 13, verse 36. That kind of became one of my life verses a long time ago when I was in college. It says this, David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, he died, and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. (laughs) Well, that's a weird life verse. I love just the simplicity of what that says. God had a purpose for David. David fulfilled that purpose in his generation, and then he died. He lived to fulfill the purpose that God had given to him. That's exactly what John the Baptist is going to say. John is going to say, all I care about is living for the purpose that God has given to me. And then I can die. John is completely happy that everyone is leaving him and going to Jesus. What is making others jealous is making John joyful. And as we see Nicodemus' response to say, I want to increase. I want my good works to be seen. I want people to know that I'm righteous. John is living out verse 21 that says the person who practices the truth and comes to the light does so so that his deeds can be manifested as having been carried out by God. Christians desire to completely fade away and let God reign supreme. Christians want the world to know I had nothing to do with my salvation. Nicodemus wanted the world to know I had everything to do with my quote-unquote salvation. That's the link here. And John the Baptist is going to say that in multiple ways. He's going to say, you can't receive anything unless it's given to you. He's going to say, I'm just a friend. I'm not the bridegroom. Everyone needs to be paying attention to him and not to me. And if that happens, that will make me happy. He's going to say, I want to decrease and I want him to increase. So, let's pick it up in verse 27. John's answer. He says, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. There's a lot that this verse implies. Right off the bat, this verse is easily answering their their argument. The Jews come, John's followers come, and they say, Excuse me, John, aren't you going to do something about these followers that are leaving and going to Jesus? We need to keep growing our band of of followers. What are you going to do about it? And John says, Jesus could not get any of those disciples if God the Father hadn't given them to him. Those disciples were given to Jesus by the Father. I don't know if those words sound familiar to John, but John chapter 6, verse 37, um, Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come, and the one who comes I will certainly not cast out. So John the Baptist is saying two things. Number one, the ministry and the success of the ministry that Jesus has right now, that's totally a gift from God, the Father. And number two, the people that are making that ministry successful, that's a gift from God, the Father. Jesus couldn't get those unless the Father had given those to him. Also, I couldn't have the disciples that I have and that you are complaining that I'm letting go if God hadn't given them to me too. It's not me. It's God. That phrase, from heaven at the end of verse 27 there's a bunch of links here to uh the the nicodemus passage that's that's the word from above uh, which is he must be born again remember it must be born again is literally born from above born from heaven same exact phrase there same exact word you can't receive anything unless it's been given to you by heaven 
So Jesus can't receive the disciples unless God the Father had given them to him. Jesus can't receive the ministry unless God had given it to him. And you and I still can't receive salvation unless the Father had given it to us. It's all included here. And yet they don't like that. They become jealous. They say, maybe we can do something. I mean, this is just, this is seeker-sensitive ministry. This is um, church growth strategy. Maybe we can do something. Maybe, yes, the Father gives, but maybe we can get ourselves. And they become jealous. John says, no, my ministry has been given to me by God. There's no, no rivalry. It reminds me of Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. You remember Paul is in jail and he says, others are preaching Christ from rivalry. Others are preaching Christ because they want to cause me pain. He says, who cares? As long as Jesus is being preached, I don't mind. There's no rivalry here. They're saying, I want to be the greatest. And yes, Paul's in prison and that means he deserves it. Now I get to go preach. Paul says, who cares? Preach Jesus. If no one follows me, fine, as long as I'm preaching Jesus. If everyone follows other people and they're preaching Jesus, fine. There's no rivalry. I don't know if this happens in your heart as a believer in Jesus Christ. You've been given gifts by the Holy Spirit to live in his church, to minister. And sometimes we look around and we go, I don't really like my gift. I know I've been given a gift, but I wish I'd been given that gift. It's like all the way back to Christmas days when you were a kid. You open a present and you're super excited about it. This is exactly what I wanted. And then your sibling opens a present and as your sibling opens it, you stop looking at your present, you look at theirs and you go, that's what I wanted. No, you just said you wanted this. No, that's what I want. So many times in the church we are like that. We say, God, I don't like the gift that you gave me. Or sometimes we say, I love the gift that you gave me and my gift's better than everybody else's gift. Not true. Hopefully words in the New Testament are ringing in your ears, right? You need the eyes and the ears of the body. You also need the hands and the feet and the toes. You need those things. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, if it was a gift to you, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Why do you boast as if you did anything to earn it? You and I are who we are in our goodness and in anything good that we've done. Only because of Jesus. The only thing that we can boast about is our badness. That we had a hand in that. We don't have a hand in the goodness. Jesus is the one who's doing those things. Just think about Philippians 2. um, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You work. Why? Because it's God who's at work in you. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. You and I are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He created the good works. You and I need to walk in them, but he created them beforehand, before the foundation of the world, that we would walk in them. So if we walk in them, we can say, I walked in them, but I only walked in them because Jesus gave me the strength, the power, and the good works to walk in. Don't become jealous. Don't become envious. I love John's response. It reminds me of the meekest man who ever lived. His name is Moses, Numbers uh, chapter 11, an amazing account of Moses. Uh, Numbers chapter 11, verses 26 through 29. There's a, a, a little man who runs up and says, uh, Moses, Moses, there's these two guys. They're prophesying. They're doing what you're supposed to be doing and what you've done. And Joshua um, runs up to Moses and he says, can you please tell those guys to stop? Tell them to stop. You have the monopoly of prophecy. Tell them to stop. Moses' answer. 
to Joshua, Are you jealous for my sake? Oh, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Let them prophesy. And if they gain more followers than I do, who cares? As long as God's word is being proclaimed. Don't be jealous for me. John's saying the same thing. Don't be jealous. Jesus called John the greatest man who had ever lived. So John the Baptist and Moses are pretty similar. Meekest man, greatest man. Probably aren't arguing about that in heaven. Who's really the greatest? Nope. They're living this out. So John says, no, don't get jealous. Whatever he has was given to him. Whatever we have is given to us. Whatever we had that may be taken away, it's God doing it. Then verse 28, he says, you yourselves are my witness that I have said I am not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I've been sent ahead of him. I'm the forerunner. And then he gives an analogy, verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. What is this analogy? The friend in verse 29 of the bridegroom is very literally the best man. This is the best man. Um, One Jewish scholar says it this way. The friend of the bridegroom in a Jewish context and culture called the Shosh Ben has a unique place at a Jewish wedding. He acted as the liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. Listen to the best, the best man's job. Those of you who are married, did your best man do this? He arranged the wedding. So we don't have a, a party planner here. We don't have a wedding planner. He did it. He took the invitations out and gave them to people. He presided at the wedding feast. So he is the wedding planner. He is the wedding coordinator. And he is the MC of the whole thing. He brought the bride and groom together. He had one very special duty above all these things. And it was a duty to guard the bridal chamber and to let no false lover in. So where the couple was going to go on their honeymoon, so to speak, to consummate their marriage, he guarded that room, that location, that house. And he would let the wife enter, and then he would guard that door and say, nobody else can come in unless it's the groom. He goes on to say he would only open the door when in the dark he heard the bridegroom's voice and recognized it. So we've we've ended our wedding feast, the, the couple's going away, and he recognizes the voice. When he heard the bridegroom's voice, he was glad and he let him in and he went away rejoicing because his whole task had been complete. Of course he's rejoicing. He just did everything at that wedding. <clears throat> he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. I love that John uses that. So context and culture, I think he's saying that because he's saying my job as the best man is to listen for the voice and then I'm done. And this is the voice. But I also love because John the Baptist has identified himself earlier as a voice. I am just a voice. I have a job and my identity is a voice preparing the way. But my voice, remember that was his identity. Everybody said, who are you? Are you Elijah? Who, who are you? The Christ? No, I am a voice. And even that now, he says, that's gone. My identity is not the voice. Now the bridegroom's identity is the voice. Jesus is the voice. My whole identity has been swallowed up in Jesus. My job was to prepare the way to be a voice. And now the voice that you are supposed to hear and follow has come, completely swallows me up. I vanish and you need to listen to his voice and not mine anymore. His entire position, his entire job, his entire life 
was devoted to being a voice that people heard. And now he says, don't listen anymore. There's another voice. There's a better voice. Listen to him. That's the voice you and I were made to hear. How do you know if you are the bride? You know you are the bride if when the bridegroom speaks, it gets your attention. When the bridegroom speaks, you listen, you love, it warms your heart, it gives you butterflies. How do you know that you are in that kind of a relationship with God? You know it when you love being with God's people, hearing God's voice in this building, hearing God's voice in this book. That's how you know it. It catches your attention. Everything else fades away. Whatever you're doing, you stop when you hear his voice being spoken. Just this week, I saw a very vivid example of this. My precious little son, um, he loves this little program. It's called Baby Einstein. It's on my phone. It's on YouTube. And if I just need 15 minutes to do nothing, just turn that thing on. Wherever he is in the house, it is the funniest thing. I'll be sitting on the couch. This happened the other day. He was out past our living room, past our kitchen, into our laundry room. So doors, doors, doorways. And I turn my phone on. I press play. And I just turn the volume up a little bit. And all of a sudden, you just hear... And he comes running and jumps onto the couch. It just instantly, everything else, whatever he was doing, and I'm sure whatever he was doing was very important to him, but whatever he was doing, he stopped instantly when he heard that sound, when that opening intro song started. He just, oh, it's on. Here we go. That's what we need to be like when Jesus speaks. And we don't really even need to talk about this. We're convicted every time we talk about devotions, every time we talk about reading the Bible. But so often we get up in the morning or in the evening or any time throughout the day and we look at this book and it's like, yeah, I mean, I know I have to do it, but whatever. We need to be like my son who, when we get to open this, it's everything else just fades away and this is God speaking. We hear his voice. By the way, I don't want to make too much of this uh, because I don't think it can be made too much of, but I do think that there's an aspect here where this answers the first question on purification. Remember, they asked about purification. It seems like the discussion in verse 25 with John's disciples and the Jews about purification, and then verse 26, it's about the jealousy over Jesus' disciples that are leaving. There's a connection because you can say purification is baptism, so it maybe got their wheels turning. But I think that John is answering that question, the deeper question. How are you purified? Is baptism what saves you? Does baptism cleanse you? And as he brings up this example of the bride and the bridegroom, instantly it makes me think of Ephesians chapter 5, right? Um, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself for her so that he might sanctify her, purify her. Revelation uh, chapter 21 verse 9 says pretty much the same thing. Jesus purifies his bride. I think John is saying the purification, quote unquote, that I've been offering has been a picture. It's a, it's a foreshadowing. It's him. Follow him. He purifies better than I could. He purifies in ways that I never could. Go to him. 
He is the bridegroom who's going to make you, the bride pure, go to him. I think it's all included in that. Jesus is the one to follow. Verse 30, a verse you know very well. He must increase, but I must decrease. The best man's not going to get up at the wedding and try and steal the show and make it all about him. Hey guys, I know we had a great wedding and this couple's great, but I want to tell you, the other day I was at Best Buy and Bola. No, he's not going to do that. It's all about the bridegroom and the bride. So he says, I want to get out of the way. I want to get out. This is beautiful, counterintuitive joy. Have you ever lived your life for the approval of man, and all you want is to be known and noticed and seen and applauded, John says, I don't want any of that. And when I don't get any of that, verse 29, end of verse 29, my joy is made full. You want to make John the Baptist frustrated? Praise him, laud him, applaud what he's done. Notice what he's done. You want to make John the Baptist very, very happy? Don't say a word about who he is or what he's done and say, I think Jesus is amazing counterintuitive joy. Again, if we as gospel people would understand this, we would look very different to the world, right? Because the world lives the exact opposite. The more I'm noticed, the more I'm loved, the more I'm respected, the more I'm happy. And John says just the opposite. I am happy to be eclipsed. Let me be far second. There's a great quote that says, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. John says, I'm fine with that. I don't need to be first chair of violin. I don't need to do that. You don't need to notice me. I just want to be a part of this and point to Jesus. And again, the reality is, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, there's somebody who's going to do it better than you. So if you learn this lesson now, life will be a lot easier. Life will be a lot easier. You can be the most amazing person on the face of the earth and you are going to die and somebody's going to come behind you. You will be forgotten and they'll do it better than you. So just learn your role. We need to learn our role as believers. Point to Jesus. Don't try and take the glory. Let him increase and let us decrease. So that's the question and the answer. Why? The reason. Verse 31 through 36 is the reason why. There's a huge debate over this. Maybe even in a study Bible that you have, it kind of discusses this debate. There's a a, a question as to who's writing. Um, There were no quotation marks in the original Greek language. It was just all run-ons together. So you kind of have to decipher, and you decipher based on context. You decipher based on who's speaking and what's being said and to whom the conversation is being directed. Verses 31 through 36, there are many people who believe this is John the gospel writer. So John the Baptist, they would say, finished in verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease, done. End of quotation mark, done with John the Baptist. And then John the gospel writer picks up the pen and kind of finishes out the statement. I normally read anywhere between 12 to 16 commentaries on the passage that I'm going to be preaching on just primarily to make sure I'm not out in left field. <laughs> I want to make sure that at least somebody's kind of thinking the same way I am. Uh, this week I read 14 and literally split down the middle. Seven said, this is John the gospel writer, and seven said, this is John the Baptist. So I don't know what to do with that. Um, if I had to make a statement, 
I would say this is John the Baptist giving the reason for what he just said of why Jesus should increase. But I will say that with a caveat. I totally understand why people say it's John the Gospel writer, and here's why. You don't see John the Baptist referring to God the Father as Father and God the Son as Son. He doesn't talk to, about Jesus as Son. He talks about Lamb, Bridegroom, things like that. It's a very interesting language for John the Baptist to be using, and it hasn't been used in this context. It just kind of seems strange to move on to that. So I understand the good thing is it doesn't make any difference if it's John the Baptist or if it's John the Gospel writer. It doesn't make any difference, and here's why. Number one, it doesn't make a difference because if it's John the Baptist speaking these words, John the Gospel writer said, you and I, it's worthy enough of being read that you and I need to see it, need to read it. So John the Gospel writer did have a hand in putting it in the book. So he's a part of it. If it's not John the Baptist at all and it's only John the Gospel writer, he would be saying the exact same thing as John would be saying. And he's giving the motivation as to why John said what he just said. So he's fleshing it out. And that's really the foundational reason why it doesn't matter. If it's John the Baptist, he would be saying these words for the exact same reason that John the Gospel writer would be writing these words. And that's this, namely, to prove why Jesus is worthy of increasing and why we are worthy of decreasing. That's the whole point of verses 31 through 36. So whether it's John the Baptist or John the Gospel writer, ultimately it doesn't matter because both of those points would be the same. Both of those people would have the same point. They're wanting to prove why Jesus should increase, because this is all about Jesus. So it's the reason. That's why I say it's the reason. It's not necessarily John the Baptist's reason. It might be John the Gospel writer's reason. If you want to dialogue about that later, we can. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. So why should Jesus increase? Because he is above all. This language is so similar. Turn back over to chapter 3, verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Chapter 3, verse 11. We speak of what we know. We testify of what we have seen. You do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven but the Son of Man who descended from heaven. So these are linked again. These are linked. Some would say it's linked because John the Gospel writer is linking it back. Some would say it's linked because John the Baptist knows the truth. The bottom line is it's linked so well. Why should Jesus increase? Because you and I are earthy. Um, Literally, it says, he who is of the earth is of the earth. That's what the literal Greek is. He who is of the earth is of the earth. You're you're earthy. Um, Paul's going to say it in a a very similar way. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 47, Paul says this. The first man, Adam, is from the earth, earthy. The second man... It's from heaven. And it's a very strange way to say that because there's a lot of men between Adam and Jesus. First man, Adam. Second man. No, no, the second man. You got Cain and Abel coming along. But Paul is saying the first man is the representation of everything that it means to be flesh and he brought sin into the world. The second man is the representation of everything that it means to be perfect and holy and, and deity. He is God and he brings salvation 
Verse 48 in that same passage, as in the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. He's talking about the resurrection when we ascend to heaven. So John writes, he who comes from above is above all. Jesus is from above. He is above all. He comes from heaven. He is our Savior. That's why he should increase. He is from God. Verse 32. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. So what he has seen and heard, namely in heaven as God, very God, full of God, to present that to the earth, nobody receives it. But verse 33, here's a strange statement. No one receives it. Verse 32. He who has received his testimony has set a seal to this that God is true. Wait, nobody receives it. No, nobody receives it. Nobody on their own receives it. And if you have received it, you didn't receive it. God gave it to you, right? That's another link to Nicodemus and the new birth. That was back in chapter 1. Turn to chapter 1, just a couple pages back. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own. His own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Well, how did they receive him? It wasn't because they were born, not of the blood, not of the will of the flesh, uh, not of the will, not of the will of man. You were born by God. There's no way that you and I could be saved unless God first did the work to breathe new life into us. So... John says the reason why Jesus should increase is very clear. He's above all. He testifies of what he has seen. And if you receive that testimony, the wind has blown in your heart and God is true. God is true. If you receive him and you say yes to Jesus, you show that God is true. No to Jesus means that God is lying, right? If you say, I don't believe Jesus is the Savior, I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you're saying God's a liar because God says that he's the Son of God. That's why 1 John 5.10 says that if you don't receive Jesus, you make God to be a liar. Verse 34, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. He gives the Spirit without measure. And the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. All things that we've studied before that's why we can keep moving through this verse 34 jesus speaks the words of god why because he is god when you hear jesus speak you are hearing god speak why because he is god in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was with god and he is god colossians chapter 1 17 through 18 jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he will come to have first place in everything. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of the Father's nature, of God's nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When, When he made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Jesus is God. The Father loves the Son, verse 35 given all things into his hand. He has all authority. He speaks and he rules as God. To sum these things up, John MacArthur has five points that are very helpful. He says, Jesus is from heaven. 
right? Emmanuel, which means God, God with us. Christmas is almost here. We're going to sing songs about that. Matthew chapter 1, his name shall be Emmanuel because God is with us. Jesus testifies of what he has heard. God is true. Jesus possesses full presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus receives all authority from the Father. Why should Jesus increase and we decrease? Because we are not God, and Jesus is. And then verse 36, to end chapter 3. This is an amazing statement. And again, it just sums everything up. He who believes in God will obey Jesus. There's a command in the gospel. And the command in the gospel is to repent and turn by faith to Jesus Christ. Remember we talked about those three Latin words that the Puritans used to talk about, that the Protestant reformers first originated? Um, That we need to have notitia, fiducia, and a census. We need to know. We need to have knowledge. We need to have faith. But you can have knowledge and faith and still not be saved. You have a census is committing your life to Jesus. You need to obey him. I love that verse. John 3.16. God, God so loved the world that he, whoever believes in his son, whoever believes in him, he gave his son for us, and whoever believes in him will be saved. Has eternal life. So you go around and you share the gospel, I believe, and their life looks nothing like what a believer looks like, what a true believer looks like. How do you interact with them? They go to John 3.16. Oh, I just believe. All you have to do is believe. Nothing about repentance, nothing about obedience. Just, hey, same chapter, take your Bible, verse 36. I totally believe that all you have to do is believe. But true saving belief has, it, has inside of it obedience to the gospel. It necessitates obedience to the gospel. I love how John says it. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. So present tense, you have it now. It's not something you're waiting for down the road. Remember, we talked about non-believers have eternal life too. Eternal life is not just living forever, if that's all you think eternal life is, because non-believers have that too. They're going to live forever in hell. Verse 36 says, this is a quality of life. This is eternal life here and now to know Jesus Christ in a saving way that non-believers will never be able to have. They don't love him. They don't want to be with him. They aren't intimately um, in love with the father through the son as the bride and a bridegroom would be. Instead, the wrath of God abides on him. Again, I love this. Abides on him. It doesn't show up when you say, I don't believe. It was already there to begin with. And that's exactly what was said earlier in chapter 18. He who believes Uh, Verse 18 in chapter 3, who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. So when we share the gospel, we're going into a world that has rejected God already. And we're pleading with them to believe. If you want to minister the gospel, you need to be humble like John. And you need to know the Savior that you're representing. We say often, uh, he needs to increase, I need to decrease. But do you really believe that? If you don't, study these verses, 31 through 36. See who Jesus is. It's the reason for why he should increase. He is God. J.C. Ryle says it this way, Every faithful minister must be content to be less thought of by his believing hearers in proportion as they grow in knowledge and faith and seek Christ himself more clearly. The more you know Christ, the more you think less of those who are sharing the gospel with you, the less of those who are preaching. Because 
First you think, oh, these guys are amazing. They are gods in your mind. They're just preaching the gospel. And then all of a sudden you see Jesus and you go, they're not amazing. Jesus is amazing. He must increase. How horrible would it be if someone were to come to our church and say, man, I came looking to hear from Jesus. I came looking to see him, but Patrick got in the way. We should all get out of the way. I need to get out of the way. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. He's more valuable than we could possibly imagine. He's more precious to us than we could possibly fathom. Are you obeying him? Are you following him? Have you submitted your life to him? Does God's wrath abide on you, or do you live with eternal life in the here and now? We'll conclude with a quote by William Carey, amazing missionary. He said this on his deathbed. I love this turned to his friend on his deathbed and said, when I'm gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. I desire that Christ alone be magnified. God, I pray that Christ alone would be magnified. That he alone would be our treasure. That he alone would be what people see when they look at us. That our faith would be in him in such a way that we cherish and treasure him above all things and the world would see. And so, God, I pray, even as we sing a prayer to you, work these things out in our hearts, in our lives, so that you would increase in our church and we would just fade away. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.